HBO Max and the removal of a lot of content. I think that is one of the trends that started in 2022, specifically at HBO Max, that you will see carry through to all other streaming services in 2023 and 2024. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, January 3rd, and today Julia Alexander joins me to talk about the Knives Out sequel on Netflix, Glass Onion, and whether its holiday premiere scored with viewers. And Julia also has some 2023 predictions about the streamers. Which one is best positioned and which platform is she most worried about? The answer will surprise you. And later, Ben Landy and Bill Cohan discuss Tesla's epic stock drop, Elon's margin call question, and what's next for the EV market in 2023. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Tuesday, everybody, and happy 2023. I am back from the holidays. Thanks to the rest of the Puck crew for holding it down on the powers that be. I'm joined today by Julie Alexander, who's got some insights into who's best positioned among the streamers in 2023. But first, Julia, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, I want to start by asking you about this Knives Out sequel, Glass Onion, that, you know, everyone sort of, I felt like, sat down and watched with their families and friends over the holidays. Um, and everyone was sort of talking about it on Twitter. I was watching it with my fiance and her family, and it was probably you know late in one of those Christmas evenings, and half the people fell asleep, so we paused it halfway through. <laughs> um, how did it do, though? I assume everyone didn't pause it halfway through. You know what? It, this is the big question. We have to remember that this movie is a rare Netflix movie that got a bit of a theatrical release. It was actually the first Netflix movie to kind of get a wide release in AMC and Regal. It played for a week back in November around Thanksgiving. And it brought in about an estimated $13 million in box office revenue. So when it debuted on the platform a month later, the big question was, would that theatrical release really hinder or help it? So now that we have the first four days of data, we look at Friday through Monday, which is what Netflix is. Netflix looks at when they release their kind of top 10 chart mm -hmm. for um, new debuts. It came in at 82.1 million hours, which equates to about 33, 34 million household streams, or if we want to consider it a completed view, because we can't actually determine how many people watched it at home. So the answer to your question is dependent on who you ask, which 
kind of sounds like a cop-out, but really some people think that it should have done much higher. It should have done better along the lines of The Atom Project, which was a big movie with Ryan Reynolds that came out earlier in 2022. I mean, it didn't really hit that level. But my argument is that I think it's got a really long tail ahead of it. I think for the type of movie that this is, it's actually exactly what Netflix needs, even if the hours are not necessarily there just yet. Well, you can also argue, too, like uh, I feel like a lot of people were watching it in groups maybe over the holidays, maybe in a way that they wouldn't if this came out in like March or something. So maybe that 82 million, whatever, 30 something million household number would be larger in another context. Well, and the thing that comes up with this movie a lot, right, is again, is is if it's considered a low performer for Netflix, some executives may point to the theatrical release and argue, you know, we know that the co-CEO of Netflix, Ted Sarandos, is a really big believer in bringing everything to Netflix first. He's kind of a big believer in the debut of it. They look at the theatrical release as more of a marketing opportunity to kind of build up hype as opposed to a traditional mm-hmm. studio like Universal or Disney who sees the theatrical release as an actual business venture that's really important to recouping the money that they're spending on the film. The thing is, though, if you look at Google search trends and if you look at other data that kind of is, exists already around the new Knives Out sequel, and there's, you know, we're still waiting on more. The biggest queries that show up on Google are variations of how do I watch the original Knives Out? Where is the original Knives Out? How do I download the original Knives oh. Out? And I think I think the fact that it's a sequel without the original on the platform may have hindered the performance slightly. I think there's a lot of people who want to go into it and they want to know about Benoit Blanc and they, they're new to it and they're hearing a lot of buzz and they think they're going to start with the first one and that's not available because Lionsgate did not give Netflix the rights to that film as part of this big $450 million deal that secured Netflix the rights to Knives Out 2, which is Glass Onion, and Knives Out 3. And so I think that hindered it. Um, I also think to counter the, the you know, it's the, th- the theatrical release's fault, when we look at the original Knives Out debut, it was a pretty 50-50 split in terms of how it did in theaters. It was, 40, it was 52% uh, domestic and 40 percent international in terms of that box office breakdown. A large part of that coming from EMEA, from the Europe and Middle East, and a large part of that coming from China. Obviously, Netflix doesn't operate in China, but Glass Onion did not get a worldwide theatrical release. It got a US-specific release and only for one week. So if we look at the kind of subscriber base, if you have 34% of Netflix's audience in Europe who hasn't had a chance to watch it, and that made up, you know, a solid portion of the original box office haul that was about $313 million back in 2019 for Knives Out, it doesn't really speak to the argument that the theatrical hindered it. And lastly, all the data that we have for theatrical films to streaming versus streaming titles alone shows that titles that go to theaters tend to do better on streaming services than those that just debut on streaming services. Is that, I mean, this might be a little bit of a detour, but is that just because the expectation is that movies, it's almost like the 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 modern version of like direct-to-video or direct-to-DVD. Like if it's only direct-to-streaming, it might not be as critically valuable, perhaps. I, I think it's a combo of that. And my personal assumption based on some personal research into this, it's also the fact that these films come with an added level of marketing because they went to theaters and theatrical mm. films tend to have stronger marketing. This is something streaming is not really figured out. And so the customer awareness is much higher. And then a lot of these streaming services, because they're trying to recuperate again the cost on that film and bring in new subscribers to their streaming businesses or retain subscribers, they're also pushing out no- uh, notifications via iPhones and Androids to customers saying, we have the Batman, we have this, you know, we have Elvis, whatever it might be, and, and it's here. And so customers, instead of having to open an app and hope that something is surfaced to them, 
they actually get it front and center and they go in and watch it. You know, with Glass Onion, I'm someone who watches a lot of comedies on Netflix. I'm someone who watched the original Knives Out. That's the type of movie that should have been in the carousel for me the day that it came out. And I saw it in theaters and I was willing to watch it again. And I had to go search for it. It was like in the seventh row down the page. And most people on Netflix are not necessarily searching around for stuff that they aren't aware exists. So if it's a new if it's a new film that debuts and there's not a lot of marketing and it doesn't surface, the chance that somebody sees that film, literally as in sees the option to watch that film, might be decreased compared to a theatrical release that does have the marketing, does have the sense of awareness, and does have that front page push. Okay, so 2022 was a rocky year for the streaming platforms. Netflix, Disney, Paramount lost billions of dollars in shareholder value. Disney obviously had the big shakeup in leadership with Bob Iger coming in and kicking out Bob Chapek. Um, Hulu is selling <laughs> uh, their content to other platforms. So with all that in mind, who do you think is best positioned in 2023 among all these big names? And I should say, too, you've been tweeting some positive things about HBO Max in the last few days. So I'm wondering if that might be your answer. <laughs> I think HBO Max is a great starting point because I think HBO Max, what happened with David Zaslav, who's a CEO, and the removal of a lot of content, I think that is one of the trends that started in 2022, specifically at HBO Max, that you will see carry through to all other streaming services in 2023 and 2023. And I think the biggest difference is that it won't just be, a, you know, a section of Looney Tunes uh, uh, cartoons or whatever it might be. Uh, you know, it's not just The Nevers, which is a show on, on HBO that not too many people watched. And so you can kind of argue, well, why keep it on the service from a business standpoint? I think you're going to look at a lot of services like Netflix getting rid of shows like not getting rid of the show specifically, but getting rid of shows like Ozark for a limited time. And I think if we think about those television shows and how we think about the way streaming economics works, those shows are designed to either bring in customers or retain customers. Ozark and the big dramas bring in customers, but customers don't typically go back to those shows over and over again the way they do with Friends or, or The Big Bang Theory or, or sitcoms and comedies in general. So if you've already made the money you're going to make on that audience, there is an argument that you can offload it for a specific amount of time to a, a, a fast for a platform, for example, to like a Pluto TV, to an Amazon freebie where they're going to generate strong ad revenue on it, where it is actually more vital to them and, and it's more valuable to them than it would be to Netflix at this time. And they loan it out for a year or two and then kind of bring it back if they're doing a spinoff or whatever it might be which it, what we're talking about is just basic licensing right this is just like it's common in hollywood it has been for many many decades but i think the streaming services operated under the assumption for many years that holding all of this content exclusively and scaling off that content was the only way to kind of succeed in it and i think what they're quickly realizing you know pushed a little bit off the edge by the by wall street turning it's it's back on them in many ways and saying well now we need to see profit we don't just need to see scale in terms of subscriber growth mm -hmm. they're now looking at okay well how do i take this content that i've invested in at a moment of pure content saturation where everyone is making decent shows for the most part in decent films and every that's no longer the big thing how do I generate more revenue off this content that's not really making me money but is still valuable to other players so that I can invest in other stuff? So I can invest in a Nike partnership because we want to get into fitness or in games or whatever it might be. So I think you're going to see a lot of that. And how does that set up the potential winner of 2023? You know, it's difficult to say. I think all of the preconceived notions that we had about obvious winners from 2020, you know, if you ask people in 2020, who would win? People said, you know, Disney plus Netflix, right? These were kind of the obvious ones. I would say mm -hmm. Netflix 
despite its, you know, fall in the stock uh, for a while and despite the fact that it lost subscribers, you know, for one of the first few times in its history. I think Netflix won 2022 in a lot of ways. And I suspect that as streamers start focusing on global audience as a first of mind priority as opposed to just having it as an after as, as an afterthought netflix is still in the best position to really succeed in 2023 and 2024 i predicted uh, in a piece for puck that i think you're going to see a major breakout show from india or breakout film like rrr will come out from india and it'll be global the way that we saw with squid game in south mm-hmm. korea that will come from either netflix or amazon um so i think you know going back to your original question who is best poised to win 2023 you know, I, I think my whole thing is don't bet against Netflix. For all of their issues, that they're run by a strong team. They've got great producers. They've got a great creative team. I would say don't bet against Disney Plus as long as there's kids. Disney yeah. has a pretty core audience, and they're expanding in the right way. And I think Iger at the helm will bring up and bring in, maybe bring back some key executives who can really help them on that front. Um, and I think HBO Max would have been, you know, my answer last year of who would have won 2022 would have been at the beginning of it, you know, uh, HBO Max. Up until June, it would have been HBO Max. And I think now there are concerns about how they handle the bloatedness of bringing in all of the discovery assets, how they handle the seemingly lack of support for HBO and how they kind of mess around with HBO, which is their crown jewel, how they go about original films. So the streaming service I'm most concerned about is HBO Max out of all of them. So that's what I was going to ask. Like, what Which stream are you most worried about in the coming year? Yeah, it's funny. It's HBO Max. I think a lot of people might have expected it to be Peacock or Paramount Plus because they're just mm. the names that get brought up when people say which ones will go away first. But Peacock, you know, for all of its jokes that get made about it, Peacock has a relatively stable business in, in the ad, on the ad side of things. It is growing. It went from 12 to 18 million subscribers in 2022, which is really strong. It's got pretty low overhead costs, and it now has a sense of direction strategically for what it wants to be. Paramount Plus, I think it also needs to figure out what it's going to be. But again, they have a really strong catalog of film and television shows. And I'm less worried about them, and they're going to make a ton of revenue on licensing and also with the Pluto TV side, like like Paramount is actually in a really good position. HBO Max is at this point of what does it become as a service if HBO is hurt, if the films aren't necessarily there, if the bloatedness makes people turned off from it, um, mm-hmm. and also the company itself fiscally is in a really tough position. So that's the one that I would say I'm most worried about. All right, Julia, thank you so much. I can't wait to see if your predictions come true in this new year, Julia. Thank you for hanging out with us. Thank you for having me. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug 
for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life welcome back i'm ben landy here with best-selling author and puck partner bill cohan happy new year bill hey ben happy new year to you you know i went to three bookstores before christmas trying to find a copy of your new book power failure for my father-in-law and it was sold out everywhere so First of all, congratulations on that. I think that's a good thing. I also wanted to congratulate you on one of your big 2022 predictions coming true. Although, to be fair, I think this was a 2021 prediction as well, which was that Tesla was massively overvalued and due to fall. So it's now fallen 70% last year, including about 40% just in the last month. You've called Tesla the ultimate meme stock. Is this just the basic laws of financial gravity finally exerting themselves here? Well, it's it's funny, Ben. I was uh, on CNBC uh, late last week after the uh, latest and big series of declines in Tesla. I think it was down 10% uh, that day when they had me on. And I said that, you know, it's perfectly logical that, and, uh, you know, I'd get out of the way of this thing, that it's going to 
fall further because it's still way overvalued. Um, and then, of course, in the last two trading days of the year, I think it was up like 10%. And so I got a lot of grief uh, on Twitter for saying that. And then, you know, people said, oh, okay, well, that was the buying opportunity that we've all been waiting for, well, you know, because I said it was uh, had further to fall and was perfectly logical. So, you know, people, uh, there, there are still the tesla maximalists out there if you will um who view this as some sort of great opportunity uh but i i just completely you know disagree because i think that uh this thing is still way overvalued uh you know not that it's not a you know good company and making products that people want but for the longest time uh its profits were coming from selling carbon credits not selling electric cars so there's big difference between being in the electric car business and making money from selling electric cars and being in the electric car business and making money selling, you know, this sort of government mandated, uh, you know, carbon credit program that's sort of a weird thing to begin with, which is obviously going to change uh, as more and more car companies get into the business of making electric cars. Uh, you know, and already many have, and Tesla, uh, like like Netflix once upon a time, had, you know, the market to uh, itself in streaming, and uh, Tesla, you know, once upon a time, at least in this century, uh, had the market to itself in electric cars, and even that's changing rapidly, and, you know, Mercedes is going all electric. So, I mean, honestly, you know, you know, price point aside, I mean, would you rather have a, a Mercedes electric car or a Tesla electric car? I mean, I, I, I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of competition and Tesla is now going to face the music uh, of being, you know, as I said, the ultimate meme stock and wildly overvalued. Uh, and the valuation is beginning to come down to earth, which makes sense to me and probably has further to go. And you combine that with the the you know kind of maniac uh largest shareholder who you know is in the process of blowing himself up at tesla uh in a self-inflicted wound and you wonder where his focus really is uh when it really of course should be at tesla i mean i i think this is just a you know i think tesla shareholders if they're rational and not just memeing out uh, I have every right to be worried about what this guy is up to. Um, and the stock is, you know, got further to fall as a result of that. Yeah, it is definitely a huge governance issue at Tesla. One thing that has sort of broken Elon's way, at least, is um, that he did not end up taking a huge margin loan to acquire Twitter. Um, you had predicted back in April when he was securing that company that if he had used his Tesla stock as collateral there, he would have set himself up for a, a punishing margin call if the Tesla stock took a nosedive. He ended up not doing that. He ended up securing the company with debt and other equity co-investors instead. But explain how that would have worked and what the danger would have been. Uh, you know, I, I saw that uh Barron's article, which had me chuckling a little bit because there was a major correction down at the bottom about how, uh, you know, they actually, the writer, uh, Al Root, who's been a big 
GE booster too, so I'm familiar with his work, thought that uh, Elon had taken out the margin loan and then they had to correct the story saying, oops, no, he hadn't taken out the margin loan, which of course he didn't do. He thought about doing and then changed his mind. And, you know, what he was going to do was take a borrow money, you know, you, you know, if you're like rich, like uh, Elon, you can, you know, find all sorts of different ways to uh, have banks lend you money. Uh, you know, one of them uh, is, you know, which is what happened ultimately is to get a senior uh, secured loan secured by the assets of Twitter. Uh, which is what he ultimately did. Um, he also could have, but abandoned the idea of getting a margin loan, uh, which is another form of secured financing, secured by his Tesla stock. Uh, but of course, that's um, uh, you know very risky or riskier uh, because you know as the value of the Tesla stock goes up and down and in lately it's been going down, that makes you subject to margin calls, uh, which of course can be initiate kind of a death spiral in uh, the valuation of the Tesla stock, you know, it becomes like a, a bad uh, cycle of, of, of that can just continue when you have to start selling your uh, a Tesla stock to meet a margin call or put up more cash or more collateral or a combination of both. Uh, so, you know, he was smart not to uh, ultimately do that, I think, given the fall of the Tesla stock. Uh, but of course, you know, now he's got uh, other problems. You know, the whole, I mean, you know, as I like to say, risk doesn't just disappear because it's moved to someplace else. You know, it could have been risk associated with the Tesla stock. Now it's risk associated with the Twitter EBITDA. Uh, which, of which there is none. He's slowly killing. Uh, and so, you know, now he's got in April uh, an interest payment of $600 million or so due on the on the Twitter senior secured debt. Now, um, you know, most people, that would be a big problem, especially when the, you know, EBITDA goes away. Of course, with Musk, since he's the you know, second richest man now, you know, he could probably make that payment himself uh, and not notice it. So, uh, and he's probably going to have to do that, to be honest, because Twitter is not generating the EBITDA that is needed to uh, make that interest payment. And if he doesn't make that interest payment, uh, then uh, the banks can claim a, uh, a default, a payment default, which is not even a technical default, a payment default. And then they can uh, initiate an involuntary bankruptcy or foreclosure. Uh, and then he would lose control of Twitter. Uh, so, you know, just because he made uh, uh, secured this loan against the Twitter assets, as opposed to the Tesla stock doesn't mean that the risk has disappeared. It just moved to some other place. Yeah, there's there's a lot of sort of unknowns here in terms of Musk's finances. I mean, we know from disclosures that um, he had something like 260 million or so shares of Tesla that were pledged as collateral before the Twitter debacle. And that's accounting for the three for one stock split over the summer. You know, at some point that was worth something like $100 billion. He's also been exercising options. He's been selling stock all this time. So we don't know exactly sort of what he has in the bank and how much he owes. But do you have any sense of at what level the Tesla stock he has margined for personal loans over the years would need to fall to before he gets a margin call? 
um, or, or is that just sort of uh, guesswork? Yeah, I, I, I'm afraid it's, it's guesswork because we're not privy to his margin agreements uh, that exist now. I mean, you know, I think part of the decline, uh, the 70 cent decline in the Twitter stock, in the Tesla stock in 2022 is related to, you know, the erratic behavior of the largest shareholder and CEO, uh, as well as the fact that he is, you know, um, has so much margin uh, loans out there related to the Twitter stock. And there must be, you know, it must be getting near. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, obviously, but if you fall 70 percent, you must be getting near a margin call on uh, on to the Tesla stock that he's already margined. And now he could put up more Tesla stock as collateral. He could put in cash uh, or he could authorize them to sell the stock. Maybe that's why he's been selling stock. Uh, you know, I guess he's just was must have gotten into the uh, mindset that, you know, he can you know, as the world's richest guy, he can just do whatever he wants and there won't be any consequences. I mean, how else do you explain the whole Twitter debacle? Uh, I mean, if you obviously don't care about losing, you know, 31 or 24 billion, which is his equity and seven of his partner's equity and the 13 billion that the banks put out, if you don't care about losing 44 billion, then you behave the way he's behaving with Twitter. I mean, again, a, a normal businessman would never and I've never, ever seen any, you know, certainly no LBO sponsor, no leverage buyout company firm, you know, the reputable LBO firms would ever behave the way he's behaved after constructing a deal uh, worth $44 billion, which is one of the largest LBOs of all time, if not the largest. So uh, nothing that he does, of course, makes sense, but he's Elon. He does whatever he wants. Well, yeah, of course, a big part of Tesla's value all along was Elon Musk himself. Uh, Tesla doesn't really have PR. They don't really run advertisements. It's just Elon. He is the face of the company. And when he was hot, when he's popular, he was driving a lot of sales. He was driving up the value of that stock. It really was the ultimate meme stock in many ways. But of course, that cuts both ways. I mean, now, like you said, when he's acting irrationally, when he's acting erratically, he can drive down the value of the stock alongside all of the other exogenous factors that you mentioned as far as the larger stock market correction, the increased competitiveness in the EV space. There are just a lot of things going against this company right now. Bill, as always, this is not investment advice, uh, but it has been fun. Thanks as always. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.